Good morning. It is great to be together today. I want to call your attention uh, as we begin to a particular passage of Scripture and sort of come in together with Wendy and the special prayer time that we're having tonight for the children. At at 5 o'clock we're gathering this evening. We're praying specifically for our children, for the camp, for the counselors, for the teaching time, for the singing time, for all of the activities for safety and for spiritual growth. I want you to pay special attention that you've been provided with a great prayer list that you can pray over every single child every day this week and all of the counselors and workers and the youth. And I want to call attention to two things. One is in 2 Timothy where Landon was reading, but just a little bit after the passage he was in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as you go there, I want to just remind you that these children that we're taking to camp, they're not going to grow up in Mayberry. Things are changing. And... um, If we take lightly this stewardship of their their souls as parents, as a church, as youth leaders and young adult and median adult and older adult leaders who are going to be at at camp with us, uh, God is entrusting them to our care to ready them not to live in Mayberry. And to live in a world that's really different than anybody here grew up in. And the the quickness of how things are going to change, if it hasn't surprised you already, it will. Because what you're seeing is the birth pains of change. And these are just the beginnings. And so I'm not, a, I'm not a negative guy. You've been around me. You know I'm not a, not a prophet, not the son of a prophet. But I, I will tell you, of all the time in your whole life that you should be here to pray for children, this will be it. Come tonight and share with us. If you can't be here, take this list with you and, and spend time in prayer for them every day this week, starting uh, this, this morning and, and moving on as we send them off, and as God entrusts them to our care for this time, to tell them the gospel um, and, and to communicate. So let's pray for them. Now, I want to mix this prayer with a thanksgiving and, and another prayer. Those of you who watched the news saw the Philadelphia Baptist Church accident. How many of you saw the picture of that bus? That was unbelievable. And uh, God was gracious to them. Uh, you may not... Be aware, Kevin's boys were, were on the bus there. Um, a lot of folks we know, a lot of dear family to us were there. And those children have been through a kind of trauma that very few people in their, in their life ever experienced, both those who were in the bus and those who watched from the bus behind. And so I want to pray for them. I want to give God thanks. And then I want to pray for them and their families and the, the stress they're feeling. And I want to throw in one other prayer. Kevin's preaching homecoming today at Philadelphia, and so we want to pray for him too. The Lord has set up a very unique day for him with what he's been through this weekend to just press the gospel into the hearts of the hearers. So let's all pray. Father, 
You are good. Everything you do is good. You are holy. Everything you do promotes holiness. You're righteous. Everything you do promotes righteousness. You're saving, and everything you do promotes salvation. You are wonderful, and we praise you. We give you praise and glory and honor through Christ and in the Spirit. Lord, we pray for these children. Make us good stewards this week. I pray for every child, Lord. You know them. You know their heart. Stir their heart this week. Draw them to yourself. Do that great work of John 6 where you, the Father, draws by your Spirit to Jesus that they may be saved. And, oh, Father, I pray to you, give wisdom to the counselors as they lead, as they teach. Make the gospel plain. Make your love plain. Make judgment plain. Make righteousness plain. As Landon and others lead in worship, make that clear. As Wendy has to make decisions day to day, fill her with wisdom. And may the result be that many children are saved and those who are not will have the seeds of the gospel planted this week. We pray for the youth and the workers and everybody involved in those accidents. This, that accident this week, we ask you to have mercy on those who were injured physically and just the emotional turmoil they're feeling today. Have mercy on them, their parents. Give grace to them and healing and use this as just a platform for Kevin to preach the gospel today and to make Jesus known and famous for what he has done. And I pray, Father, that the result will be salvation for the lost and strength for the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. The text I was calling your attention to to pray over the children this week is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give the wisdom that leads to salvation through the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Pray that for them this week, that they hear the sacred scriptures. Join me now as we look together at a follow-up from last week's message called Delighting in His Word. We saw the call to delight in his word in Psalm 1 last week. And so what I wanted to do today is give you some practical things to take home to assist you in delighting in his word. And so I want to begin by calling uh, your attention to uh, how to have a quiet time. Now, I spelled that wrong. My wonderful helping spell text didn't, uh, spell check didn't pay any attention to the fact that I had written it wrong this morning when I typed it in on the final copy. It's quiet time not quite time, so uh, it's fixed. Lynn found it on the PowerPoint and fixed that, but in your uh, little outline there, if you'll fix that to quiet time. What's a quiet time? It's time that you do what Jesus did. You draw aside and you spend time with the Father by the power of the Spirit in fellowship with the Son. So what are some practical ways that we can do that Let's talk about that, a little bit of help that may come to us toward the middle, and at the end, some things that will result from our delighting in God's Word, and maybe some pertinent things to the stuff that happened this week. So first, set a time. If you're going to have a quiet time, you need to set a time. You need to just pull aside and set a time. 
That means you need to know what time tomorrow you're going to have your quiet time. Plan for it today. Go ahead. Set a time. Say, okay, tomorrow at 6.30, 6.15, 5.45, 4.30, 7.50. Tomorrow I'm going to set a time to have a quiet time. I'm going to plan to do it. I'm making a commitment today, and I'm going to plan to do that tomorrow, and I'm going to do that every day. I'm going to begin by setting a time. It may mean 15 minutes less sleep that you invest early in the morning. I really encourage you to have your quiet time as early in the day as possible. First thing, if possible. Guys, we had that challenge of not going to our electronic devices for 30 days. I hope you're able to keep up with that, going to the Word first. This would be a great way to continue that. Set a time. Second, prepare a place. Go ahead and prepare a place. Uh, a desk or the couch or some place that you can go to in the morning where you're away from folks, maybe a little breakfast table, a dinner table, some place where you can be away and as alone as, as alone as possible, and go ahead and set it up. Go ahead and get the next things that I'm going to mention there and have them ready. Because here's the deal. You will always find an excuse not to do what you're supposed to do. It's just how it is. I don't have enough time. Oh, I can't find my Bible. Oh, I left my journal. Oh, go ahead and set it up. The night before, maybe the last thing you do every night is set up your quiet time place so that you can go right to it. Maybe you set it by the coffee maker. Does that help any at all? My friend Chuck Wood, uh, late in his life, um, was stricken with, with uh, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and uh, and he had to get off caffeine, and he told me, he said, after 20 years of meeting Jesus with coffee, I didn't know that God existed apart from coffee. It was his first ritual in the day for 20 years, coffee and, and the Bible. And so uh, he said, that was a tough thing. But if you're a coffee guy or gal or whatever, go ahead and set that up. Have that ready. Prepare. Next, select a Bible. I want to encourage you to have a quiet time Bible, a dedicated paper, not electronic, quiet time Bible one that you can navigate and make notes in. Lynn, can you pull that picture up? Did, I, did that get through the thing today? Did it? I don't think it did. There's no picture there. Okay, we've been having a little trouble with our PowerPoint, so y'all pardon us as we work through that. I had a picture that I'll describe to you now uh, of a Bible that has wide margins. The way to do a Google search for it or any other kind of search or go to christianbook.com or Amazon is just write in the word journaling Bible. That's all you have to do. And what it'll do is it'll give you several examples of Bibles you can buy that have a two-inch margin on each side so that there's places for you to take notes. Just write in journaling Bible and just take those and make notes. And uh, it's great. It, it, they're, they're, there's a new one coming out with the Holman Christian Standard. It's just been released. It'll deliver on July the 7th. So if you go to christianbook.com or, or you go to Amazon or to the Baptist bookstore, the Lifeway, um, tell how old I am when I said that, uh, you will find that it's not on the shelf yet, but it's going to be released on the 7th of July. It's the Holman Christian Standard Journaling Bible, two-inch margins. Great for your quiet times, making notes. Select a Bible, dedicate it to it, and keep it there if at all possible. Next, use a notepad and a journal, highlighters, pen, and pencil. Go ahead and set that up. Get a little journal or a notepad, whatever works for you. 
highlighter that you can mark in your Bible. That's one of the things that you should do in your quiet time Bible is mark things. There are all kinds of highlighters. There's ink ones and non-ink ones. There's colored pencils. Get whatever works for you. Uh, best thing, just go and find the very inexpensive ones and use that. Uh, pen and pencil to make notes, to write alongside. Kay Arthur has done a really good job in her How to Study the Bible little booklet. If you want to find that, just type in Kay Arthur, How to Study the Bible. And she teaches you how to use different symbols for different things and track those things through the Bible. It's actually very helpful. Um, it's called the Inductive Bible Study Method. In fact, there's an inductive study Bible that you can buy. Use tools to help you. Don't make it complicated. Keep it simple. All right? Use these. Next, have a reading plan. Some kind of reading plan. If you will do a Google search that says Bible reading plan, you'll get more than you ever dreamed of. In fact, I emailed one last night that had about 10 different ways of reading the Bible. If you send me an email, I'll send that out to you. Uh, the main thing is just have a plan, some simple plan. It may be read the book of John. Don't try to super spiritual this thing where you set off trying to read 19 chapters a day and you're going, you know, it, just make it simple. Make it something you can do repetitively if you simply read a few verses a day. Now, I want to give some advice at this point that... It may tweak you a little bit. I don't use devotionals during this time. Devotionals are 80 to 85% what other people say and twenty to 15 to 20% Bible. During your quiet time, you really don't need to know what other people say. You have the rest of the day to find that out. During your quiet time, just find out what God says. Just do that. I'm not against devotionals. Use them. They're great tools. Open Windows and the, the men's magazine, they're great. I'm not against this. But I think that for your quiet time with God, the principal thing you should hear is Him and His Word. Just listen to Him. And just keep all those commentaries. This is not the time to find out 19 views on the book of Revelation. Just read. Let the Lord speak, make notes of things you might want to ask about later or do further study, but separate that further study from that time. Stay simple. Now, I want to give you maybe a little piece to go on to this that might help. Uh, take me to that. The following acrostic has been helpful to many as they seek to spend time alone with Jesus. It, this is the acrostic. You can write it in. It's very simple. Acts. Just fill those little four blanks in. A C. T-S. This helps me. It's helped many keep the quiet time kind of simple. Here it is. First, adoration. The chief thing that I need to do when I spend my time with God is to get my affections right. I don't know if you're like me, but my affections aren't always very good. My affections get messed up all the time. I find it easy to lust I find it easy to covet. I find it easy to have all kinds of feelings that come from my flesh that are not the things that help me have my affections on Jesus. So I need to spend some time 
raising my affections toward Jesus by reading things about Jesus that he's done for me or singing songs about Jesus. Sometimes singing is a beautiful way to raise our affections when we get good old hymns. It wouldn't be bad to have a hymn book with you while you're doing this because you can open and read some hymns and sing. But adoration is a time where you begin lavishing praise on Jesus for who he is, what he's done for you, and where he's taking you. Who he is, God in the flesh, what he's done, died for your sins, where he's taking you. He has prepared a place for you that he may come and receive you unto himself that you may be there with him also. That's what he's going to do. So raising our affections through adoration. Second, confession. Don't play around with God. He knows what you've been doing. Just admit it. Call sin, sin. Admit it. The word confess is not what we've turned it into. We think confession is just admission, but it's more than that. The word to confess comes from the union of two Greek terms. Homo, which means same. Logeo, which means to say or to speak. When you unite homo logeo, it means that you say the same thing about your sin that God says about it. You're just agreeing with Him about your sin and what it really is. This is not the time to whitewash. This is not the time to try to excuse or impress. Just say it and call it. That's what it is to confess, to say the same as God. And then, with that, thanksgiving. That core verse there in chapter 4 of Philippians where it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Sometimes the greatest way to help your adoration is to count your many blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. And to take the time to literally begin to thank Him for the multitude of blessings He has given you, most of all, Christ Himself, the great eternal blessing of our souls. And then, finally, supplication. Supplication is simply praying for others, praying for needs, praying for intervention. Putting this at the end because then with the adoration and the confession and the thanksgiving, we've set our hearts right for the prayer for other things and for other people. We've set our heart right for that. This is a good, simple approach to delighting in the Lord's Word. Do this along with the Bible, and I think it will help your life grow in Christ. And here are three things that will follow that if you... Sink yourself, you immerse yourself into the Lord's Word. If you truly delight in Him and delight yourself in the Lord, there are some things that will follow, and I wanted to share those with you. I didn't call them benefits, and when we get to the last one, I think you may understand why I didn't use that term. I just called it results. So first, 
satisfaction. The greatest way for you to fight sin is not to roll up your sleeves and tough guy, tough gal it. That is not it. Because you're fighting an enemy that cannot be beat with any form of personal fortitude. You're fighting an enemy that can only be defeated in a spiritual battle. And if you are not satisfied with Jesus, the enemy already has a pathway to your heart. It's called hunger. If you are not satisfied with Jesus, you will enter every single day with a craving to be satisfied by something. And if you are not satisfied with Jesus, Satan will show up and offer you something to satisfy you. And he is wily. He's a schemer. He's a trickster. And so he is going to use avenues of all kinds of things to simply work on one area that you will have trouble with. If you are dissatisfied with Jesus, you will, by the fundamental desire of your soul, you will seek something else. Now, the best place to understand this is in Matthew 4. So I want to take you there and show you in Jesus' life how he found this satisfaction and what it teaches us about our satisfaction in him. In Matthew chapter 4, we have what's called the temptation of Jesus. It's not that Jesus wasn't tempted a lot of other times and all the time, but this was a particular instance in which Satan personally appeared to him and personally um, sought to use the situation to bring Jesus into sin. The situation is set up, and we're only going to look at the first four verses Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Now, I want to share with you something very important here. He does not get a pass here. Whatever you would be like after 40 days and 40 nights, whatever the average human being would be like after 40 days and 40 nights, that's what Jesus was. Because he did not get a pass on hunger. He didn't get to say, okay, day one, I am the Son of God. I'm not even going to feel this thing. Let's just get it over with. Whatever you would feel like at day 40 is how Jesus felt. Probably close to delirium. Body beginning to digest itself. Beginning to eat its own muscle. It's eaten through the fat stores. It's eaten through the carb stores. Now starting to eat through the muscle. 40 days. No input, body has to feed on something, feeds on itself. Jesus is at that place. He's feeling all of that, the weight of it. He is truly hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, 
Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, when I grew up, I thought that what Jesus was teaching me here was how to quote Scripture as my defense against temptation. I'm not saying that that's not here at all, but that's not the point here. The point here is totally different. The point here is that Jesus was already fundamentally satisfied so deeply that that satisfaction even had charge over physical desires. Now, this is very important in navigating all temptation because much temptation is premised on physical desire. Jesus was saying, I've already eaten. I have been eating. What I have done is I have taken my Father's Word, which is bread. I have ingested it into my heart. And I am so satisfied with my Father and His Word that you do not have a foothold, a toehold. You do not have an entry, an angle, an avenue on my soul because my soul is satisfied. My brothers and sisters, listen carefully. If you want to enjoy the power of overcoming even the fundamental desires of your flesh. The way to do that is to be satisfied with the bread that came down out of heaven. Jesus turns in John 6 and says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If a man eats this bread, he shall never hunger. And what he is wanting to do is satisfy your soul at such a fundamental level with who he is, what he's done for you, and where he's taking you, that it even allows control over physical desires. And that is why satisfaction is the chief thing we're after in time with his word. It's the benefit of of being satisfied with Jesus by daily opening up what he has revealed to us about himself and eating and drinking that in. Jesus looked at the woman at the well and said, if you drink the water I give you, you shall never thirst. And here's what Satan's doing every day. He's pecking at your soul to find hunger and thirsty spots that he can tempt you with. And if Jesus has satisfied you, he can't get an angle on you. And it will give you the kind of power that keeps you free from the control of the flesh. Second, trying to keep my time going here. Second, sanctification. The second result of time with the Lord in His Word is likeness with Him. 
The Bible teaches us in John 17, 17, that Jesus' prayer to the Father is this, Sanctify them by thy word, thy word is truth. Sanctification is the process by which a born-again believer, through the Lord's word, is made into the Lord's likeness. That's it. That a born-again believer, through the Lord's Word, is made into the Lord's likeness. That's sanctification. That's why Jesus prayed to the Father. Father, sanctify them through Your Word. Your Word is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We take Jesus into us through His Word. When we dine on who He is and what He's done for us and where He's taking us, when we take that in daily, we're not only being satisfied in Him, we're being made like Him so that we can represent Him on this mission he has given us. First Peter tells us, like newborn babes, to desire the sincere milk of the word by which you will grow up in your faith. That growing up is not simply age, it's likeness. It is the maturity of Christ likeness. It's a glorious and beautiful transformation. That's his goal in your time with him. And finally, and and there's a reason I said not necessarily benefits, because this one I don't think feels like a benefit. Third, separation. Satisfaction, sanctification, and separation. Something happens with the Lord's Word that separates us from the rest of the world. It doesn't separate us in the sense of a cloister like monks who run off and kind of hide from the world inside a monastery or, or like a, a cult like David Koresh and you pull away from the world. Now, Jesus placed you in the world. He placed you in your neighborhood. He placed you in your job not to retreat from it. But there will be a separation in this world because bottom line, what we read before, what Landon read in First Timothy, excuse me, Second Timothy chapter three, difficult days will come. My brothers and sisters, you're in those days. You are in those difficult days. And in those difficult days, the scary thing is, is that people who say that they're naming God or Christ or church will be the ones leading the way in those difficult days. In fact, if you join me there. I'll just share one word from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and then take you to Jeremiah to something very important and then close with maybe three statements to help us digest this separation. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient. You can just see that all around and even within the church. Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. But, but the last two statements, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's something that we're seeing on the horizon in the whole movement that we were confronted with with the Supreme Court this week, that there's this kind of grasp that the love of pleasure has on humanity. So much so that, 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 that willful, sinful behavior is proudly 
displayed. And he says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Um, As we've watched the sexual revolution unfold from the 60s to part of its culmination this week, we have watched the church succumb to this in many ways. Much of the church's footing to speak strongly against some of the things we saw this week has come from the fact that we were not very good at confronting heterosexual sin beforehand. We got very comfortable with premarital sex and adultery. I'm going to try not to say too much for the children's sake. I'm going to try to be really careful. We got really comfortable with, with, with adultery. And, and we, we got really comfortable with movies that were filled with it and, and nudity that was primarily heterosexual. We got really comfortable with those things. And because we were willing to invite them and not confront them and not stand clearly against them in the wrecking of our own families and all the stuff, we've, we've lost a little bit of our voice to speak against the issue of homosexuality. And, and, and people who struggle with homosexual desires, they see that. They see that we're much more prone to, to confront a, a boy and a boy having 18-year-old relationship than a boy and a girl having an 18-year-old improper relationship. I think you know what I'm trying to say. And because we weren't willing to confront it with boy-girl and, and call it what it is, it's really hard to say boy, boy, or girl, girl. We've lost a little bit of our, our prophetic voice. And that's a problem. And, and we, need to, we, need to, we, need to, we need to confess that. We've let our families be wrecked. We wouldn't say much. We get to where we think premarital... Physical relationships are just a rite of passage. And now all of a sudden we want to speak up. And we're in trouble. You know, how do we deal with that? I think, honestly, I think the prophetic voice is so well summarized in Jeremiah. I want to go there. And I'm going to take about seven minutes extra of your time. Will you, will you just hang with me? Because I need to say what he says here as this outcome and, and then close. I, I wanted to do this more quickly. I want to go to Jeremiah 15. And I want to talk to you about three things that are going to be a part of this that we need to hold on to. When Jeremiah received the word of the Lord, it's very much like what happens when John is given the little scroll in the book of the Revelation. There's this moment of sweetness, and then there's this aftertaste of bitterness. We have in the, the little scroll in, in the book of the Revelation, John eats it, and in his mouth it's sweet, but it's in, in his stomach it's bitter. We have the same thing in Jeremiah. Pick up with me 
in verse 16 of Jeremiah 15. And thy words were found, and I ate them, and thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. In other words, the word of salvation, the word of God's grace, the word of God's love, the, the word of God's redemption, the, the word of God's messianic calling through Israel to redeem his people is sweet in our mouth because we know and we sing, yes, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. That is so sweet on the tongue. But down into our stomachs is a bitterness because of the grief of those who refuse him and who walk away. And so Jeremiah says in verse 17, I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult. Because of thy hand upon me, I sat alone, for thou didst fill me with indignation. Why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Here is Jeremiah saying that I feel separated from people. Your word was so sweet of salvation to me, and I rejoiced in it. But, oh God, so many people aren't saved, and they wander aimlessly into doom. And all of a sudden, Jeremiah gets that sweet, bitter kind of weird feeling that we should all have about sin and sinners. The salvation of Christ is the most wonderfully sweet, tasty thing we could ever take in. But the reality of the condemnation of the lost should cause something. I've watched a lot of folks responding to this Supreme Court decision, and I've seen some venom, and I've seen some some nasty come out of so-called Christian mouths. My brothers and sisters, when Jeremiah had the word of the Lord come to him, it wasn't venom that came out of his mouth, it was tears that came out of his eyes. And the church will not have her prophetic voice until we begin to weep over sin. Beginning with our own. Someone said very clearly on Twitter this week, it's not love the sinner, hate the sin. It's love the sinner, hate your sin. Because if you can't start in your own heart with who you are and what you've done to offend a God who ought to send you to hell, you can't speak to anybody else. First, the separation is a separation of grief. When Jesus looked on the multitudes, it said he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Everybody back then knew what that word meant. It meant that you were about to get eaten by a wolf. And when we look out at humanity and we look at people who are prideful about our sin, my brothers and sisters, we should not be bowing up with anger. We should be welling up with tears. These are men and women made in the image of the living God. And he loves them just like he loves you. And he has sorrow upon sorrow. We should be filled with grief. The Apostle Paul, when the, when the Jews tried to kill him and they hunted him and they pursued him, he said in Romans 9 and in Romans 10, he said, God is my witness, I have great sorrow in my heart and unceasing grief for my kinsmen according to the flesh. When we look out at humanity and we see them so distant from God, our hearts should break. And we will not have a prophetic voice if it is the voice of wrath or anger. We will if it is the voice of sorrow.
weep for our sin and weep for theirs. Second, the second kind of confusion is the confusion of grace. And I've watched this unfold in church and out of church. And it's how immediately when you speak to an issue, people immediately say you're being judgmental. God is a God of grace. Please hear me. If anybody talks to you about grace while they are willfully sinning, they don't know what they're talking about. They do not. That's why in the end of Peter uh, of Timothy's writing, what he said there was they're holding to a form of godliness but de- denying its power. Grace, here's, here's what happens. If you are in the middle of willful sin and you're talking about grace, what you're asking for is forgiveness, uh, excuse me, is permission, not forgiveness. When you are talking about grace in the middle of willful sin, you are asking for permission, not forgiveness. I want you to be careful with this stuff. Because people in the coming wave of how the church is going to have to cope with this, the word grace and the word judgmentalism is going to be thrown around a lot. When someone speaks about grace in the midst of unrepentant, willful sin, they're asking for permission. Don't confuse grace with permission. There is no kind of sin and no kind of sinful person that God, through grace, cannot forgive. But when a person is willfully sinning, asking for grace, they're not asking for grace. They're asking for permission. So this is a confusion. That's why in... The writing of Jude, he said that there was a time coming when people will turn grace into licentiousness. People want to say, well, we just just need to give grace to that. Be really careful how you use that term. Because grace is always given by Jesus to anyone who comes to him seeking him. But when people would come seeking him, he would look at them and he would say, go your way. And sin no more. He was very clear. Real repentance means turning from sin. And real grace is that which is embraced by the person seeking God's favor, not God's permission. And you can't have both in willful sin. Finally, I I have to close with this. The approval of God. Ultimately, That's all we need to be after. The world and the political system that surrounds us right now is not going to approve of you. It's not going to approve of you college students that are headed to college. It's not going to approve of you and your workforce as you go through all the different kinds of sensitivity training. It's not going to approve of you anywhere. You're constantly, as a believer who tells the truth about all sin, not just some sin, by the way, if you're living in, a, in, a, in an immoral relationship heterosexually, you've lost all your traction to speak against the other kind of relationships. And so, the final thing in reading God's Word and taking it in, and the separation, is that if you will live your life simply seeking to be approved by God, you will feel the weight of what Jeremiah felt. 
there will be times you will say, God, why is this wound incurable? Why do I feel so alone? Why do I feel so isolated? Why do I feel so separated? God, help me. Part of Jeremiah's problem was that he was expecting the people to approve his ministry. And God rebuked him for that. There is no way you can seek the approval of humans over the approval of God and have any effect on your surroundings. I want to encourage you to open the Lord's Word, read it, trust it, and live it. Would you bow with me? Um, I, I'm burdened. I, I hope you can sense that. And I'm burdened for the whole of who we are. Because when the Apostle Paul made his laundry list about sin... He had covetousness and idolatry right in there with adultery and homosexuality. In other words, if we're going to be serious about any sin in the world, we need to be pretty serious about all sin and beginning in our own hearts. And so it's possible you've shown up here today and you and, and Jesus need to work through some things. Guys, perhaps it's some things you've been viewing or longing for, or participating in. Girls, you too. Youth could be college students. And, and, and possibly today you were brought here so that you would just open the Bible back up and get back in and deal with some things that you know you're guilty of. So that you could really know what grace is. Grace seeing how horribly sinful we are and receiving this wonderful washing and cleansing as we confess our sins. And so, I want to invite you today to a fresh start. Some of you for your first fresh start with Jesus. To have all of your sin and all of your past cleansed and washed away, and that you could be forgiven right now of everything you've ever done, because Jesus died for your sins, was raised from the dead. He is God in the flesh. He is the Savior of the world. And he is the king of the universe. And if you would turn to him as God's savior and king today and embrace what he's done for you, he would wipe it clean and make you new again. Would you do that? Would you even pray with me now? God in heaven, I need cleansing. I am that sinner who deserves your wrath. But I've heard this sweet story. Jesus died for my sins. And so now, knowing that he was raised from the dead, I place my faith in him. Forgive me, wash me, save me. Oh, listen, he would at this moment. Would you call on him? Others of you, you're believers, you're here, but you need to deal with some things to restore the prophetic voice of the church and the prophetic voice of your life and the prophetic voice of your home. You need to deal with some things. And so I just want to invite you to the altar and come. Join me as I do the same. Would you stand? As God stirs your heart, would you come? Amazing
shall soon dissolve like snow. Would you sing it with me? The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear 
to shine, but God, but God, you call me here below, will be forever mine, will be forever mine, as you pray for two groups of people and actually add another prayer on that. A lot of prayer today, which is good. Um, I would love for all the children's camp workers to come forward. We're going to pray over you and the Ecuador team to come forward as well. Uh, we're going to pray over you. So if y'all would uh, make your way on down uh, and, uh, and we'll, we'll have prayer together. Just go ahead and uh, head this way. Bill Mount, where are you? Won't you come and lead us in prayer for these? Also, we got word during the service that Rick Rabelais has died during the service today. Uh, we knew that was drawing in um, as critical as he was in the hospital this week, but uh, it was still much more quickly than we supposed. So we want to pray for Rick's family and ask the Lord's mercy upon them. Uh, and just uh, for the grace, also praying for safety for travel, giving the Lord uh, praise for bringing all the teams home safely from our, our youth trip. So, Bill, come and lead us in prayer. Let me just step in one moment and mention one thing. Uh, last week, uh, failed to mention and share something that uh, uh, one of our students, Haley Fields, she's the daughter of uh, Pepper and Scott Fields, um, ninth grader, here. She is out with Louisiana Baptist All-State Youth Choir. Uh, they're doing choir tour and mission work. I believe Colorado is the longest part of their destination. And so I just want to make sure. I think it was going on this past week and continuing on throughout this week. So I want to ask the church to continue to pray for her and those others that are um, on mission that way. And I failed to mention one thing. Sign up for the study. As you go out today, this is going to be our Sunday evening study for the rest of the summer, kicking off next week. It's going to be a great time together in the Word, and it's the pursuit of holiness. We're going to have a big group time together, small group time afterwards. Sign-up sheets are on the table afterwards. If you would go ahead and do that, uh, we would love to go ahead and arrange all the classes before next Sunday evening when the kickoff begins. Love y'all. Bill, come and share with us and pray. Pray with me. Our Father, indeed, we're thankful to you for all you do for us, for all you have done for us, and for all you're going to do. Father, we lift up to this morning these precious children of ours as they go to camp. It could be a wonderful experience, and it always has been and always apparently will be. And we pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit to speak to the hearts of these young ones, these tender hearts that are so open to you. Father, we lift up these that mourn. Think of Rick and his family, such a young man in the prime of life. We pray indeed for them and pray your Holy Spirit will indeed do the job of comforting that he does so well. 
Father, you've been so good to us in so many ways, and we praise you. We praise you for that. Now, Father, lead us throughout today and the week to come, and may we always be a shining light in the darkness. We ask these things in Jesus' sweet and precious name. Amen. Thank you.